Okay. I am um, really hesitant to shut down these conversations, partly because the uh, <clears throat> sermon today has to do with showing love to one another <laughs> within the body of Christ, so it feels uh, a little bit wrong to tell you all to stop loving on each other, but um, I don't plan to preach very short today, so perhaps we should get into it. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, um, and I'll be preaching from verses 9 through 12, but we are going to read verses 1 through 12 for the sake of putting those verses in context. So even though you just sat down, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? <clears throat> And I would invite you to open your Bible, even though it will be up on the screen, but <clears throat> I'd love for you to open the scriptures and um, read along. Again, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12, but our focus today will be on verses 9 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith, towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for loving us enough to speak words both of hard truth and of grace and peace. We ask, Spirit, that you would speak to us today. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and stir up our bodies to respond in faith and obedience. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> so as we begin this morning, uh, I want to 
invite you to imagine that one of your relatives has passed away, and I leave it up to you to choose which relative in your mind has passed away. Um, but <clears throat> could be a made-up relative. Maybe that would be even better. But if you had a relative who passed away and left uh, some jewelry for you, and just imagine that as you're looking through this jewelry box, you find a couple of fairly good-sized loose diamonds. You might be excited, thinking, wow, they actually left me something valuable. Um, but that excitement might be tempered a little bit with the reality that those diamonds could be fake, right? They could just be glass. They could be uh, what's the cubic zirconia. And so you would want to determine whether you actually had real, authentic, valuable diamonds on your hands. And you might not want to pay a jeweler who could test those diamonds for you and let you know what you had. Um, because you wouldn't want to lay out some money for that and then just find out that they're actually fake and not worth anything. Um, there are a couple of tests that you can do at home to determine whether a diamond is authentic or not. You can do uh, a sandpaper test. You can take it and just take some sandpaper and scratch it on there, <clears throat> rub it on there rather, and a, uh, a fake diamond will have a scratch in it because they're not very hard, uh, but a real diamond will not have a scratch on it because diamonds are one of the hardest substances that we have on earth. So that would be one test. You can also um, put, a, put this supposed diamond on a, a piece of paper, something that has some lettering on it, and try to read through it. A, a fake diamond, you can read through. A, an authentic diamond, you cannot read through. Uh, you can also drop it in a glass of water. And a, uh, a real diamond, an authentic diamond, because it's very dense, it will sink. And a fake diamond will float either on the top or just below the surface. So you can go home and try these things on, on your uh, wedding, wedding ring and so forth. You do have to take it out of the setting, though, for these tests to work. Um, but there are other tests as well. You can test them with fire. But that's enough for you to, to get the point that I'm trying to make, which is that you can take something that looks like a diamond and subject it to certain tests to determine if it is actually an authentic diamond. And in Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 4 and 5 that we just read, we read about individuals who give the appearance of being authentic followers of Jesus. Again, those verses, verses 4 and 5, say that they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And yet, as we learned last week, those descriptors are not a guarantee of authenticity. It's possible that a person, even after having all of those experiences, can fall away, can deny the faith, and thus prove that they never had authentic faith. And if that happens, as the passage says, the results are, are frightening. It's impossible to restore such a person again to repentance. They are under the curse of God. Their end is to be burned Fake faith results in destruction. That's the summary of that passage. And these verses are a severe warning. We should take them seriously. They're, they should have the effect of jolting us out of our spiritual slumber, like, like a smoke alarm that goes off. And that being jolted, that alarm should cause us to do what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, when he says, you should examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He says to test yourselves. 
So then the question is, how do we do that? If all those things listed in Hebrews verses four and five, uh, chapter six verses four and five, if that can be true of someone, and yet their faith could be fake, how do we avoid fooling ourselves? Is it actually possible to test our faith for authenticity? And the answer is yes, it is. These warnings in Hebrews, and we're not done with them yet, so we're going to preach all the way through the book of Hebrews, and there are more warnings. Um, This is probably the most intense and severe, but there are more warnings. But these warnings, they're not just in Hebrews, they're elsewhere in Scripture. These things should cause us to fear falling away from the faith. But one thing that we don't have to fear is not knowing. Like, we we don't have to fear that there's no way of knowing, that we can never know whether our faith is authentic or not. We shouldn't fear that we just have to constantly live with uncertainty and doubt about whether we're a child of God or not. God does not intend for you or any of his children to walk around constantly or even daily wondering, am I truly saved? Am I a child of God or not? He doesn't want us to live with that kind of uncertainty and doubt. And our passage today is given by the Holy Spirit to help you to be reassured that your faith is actually genuine, and then to spur you on with renewed passion and hope towards the glorious outcome of this journey of faith. That's what this passage in verses 9 through 12 helps us to do. So the first thing we see in that passage is that the writer of Hebrews, he acknowledges what he's just said. He acknowledges that he has spoken in a way that's intense, that's severe, that's even frightening. He says, though we speak in this way, he's referring to that rebuke and warning that he's just given. He says, yeah, we've spoken in a way that is, it's, it's intense. But then the next words he says are, <clears throat> yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's been tough, but now he's being tender. And when he says, he calls them beloved. And this is the only point in the book where uh, the writer of Hebrews calls the people reading this, beloved. He's reassuring them, I think, that his rebuke and his warning that they weren't given uh, out of a desire to harm them, but they were actually an overflow of his love for them. They're intended to help them. And I just want to say to you, church, that uh, Pastor Steve, Pastor Jason, and I, we, we preach these rebukes and warnings of Scripture, not because we enjoy causing you to fear, it's not some kind of power trip that we, we feel like, oh, we can, we can make these people be fearful. But it's because we love you. Just as a, a loving parent will sternly warn their child about the dangers of running out into the middle of the street, loving pastors will warn their flock about the dangers of becoming lazy and apathetic in the faith, about the eternal dangers of fooling yourself about the condition of your soul. And so this willingness that we have to preach the warnings and rebukes of Scripture is actually motivated by our our love for you. It's an affirmation of our love for you. And so even though we, we believe that God has called us to give you stern biblical warnings, also like the writer to the Hebrews, we affirm that in your case, 
as a church, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of things that belong to salvation. You might ask, well, what are the, what are the things that you see that give us that kind of confidence? What are the things that belong to salvation? These are the things that help you, that help me, help us to test the authenticity of our faith. And so what, what kind of things would we expect the writer to the Hebrews to point to? What kind of test do you think that he would subject our faith to? I think that many evangelicals and per- perhaps many of us in the room today would actually point to the things in verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> I mean, look again at those things, and that sounds like a genuine conversion experience. And yet, as he points out, it's possible to have all those experiences and not have genuine, lasting faith. And so that's actually part one of the test, to ask that question, where do you look for evidence that your faith is authentic? What kind of evidence are you looking for? Do you just look back on past experiences? Do you look back on an emotional conversion experience? Do you look back on your baptism? Or do you look back on a time when you felt like you had a deep love for Jesus? The author of Hebrews isn't saying that those kinds of things are bad. They're not bad. They're actually good. But the problem, he says, is that those may or may not be connected to genuine faith. And so what he says in verses 9 through 10 is that you can be confident that your faith is authentic when your life shows costly, active, and ongoing demonstrations of love for God. And maybe that's, that's not so surprising. Yeah, of course, faith, if we have faith, we're going to have love for God. But what might be surprising is what he highlights in verse 10 as the particular way in which our love for God will be demonstrated when faith is authentic. Look at verse 10. What he highlights is that the evidence of authentic faith is seen in sacrificial service to the people of God. It's in identifying so closely with the body of Christ, with the church, that we are willing to lay down our time, energy, money, even our freedom for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Again, verse 10 says this, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Did you see that? Do you see why is the writer so confident that he feels, he says, I've said these hard things, but I am sure of better things for you. He has that confidence because they've gone beyond religious experiences and, the, uh, and a bare profession of faith. They demonstrated that their faith was authentic by their persistent practical service to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They showed their love for God by serving one another. And we know it was persistent because the writer says that they had shown it in the past, and he, and he says, as you still do. So they are showing it still. So it's persistent. We also know it's practical because we aren't left to wonder what he's talking about. Um, he just says, your work and serving the saints. But in chapter 10, he actually specifically mentions what he's speaking about here, the ways that they served and the work that they did. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, He says, recall the former days 
when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So these believers, they endured persecution because they loved God. Some of them had been beaten. Some of them had been thrown in prison for identifying with the name of Jesus. And then when some of them were thrown in prison, others were willing and glad to go and help them, to also identify with them, to, to partner with them, to say, you're, you're suffering for the name of Jesus? Well, I've, I follow Jesus too, and so I'm willing to identify with you, and if need be, to suffer with you. And at that time, being put in prison didn't mean that you were going to get you know, a new set of clothes and three square meals a day. When you were put in prison, you were dependent upon your, your friends, your relatives, anyone who was willing to come and help you out and, and provide food and clothing for you. And so that is the kind of thing that these believers had done for one another, that their love for God overflowed in love to one another to such a degree that they were willing to bring food, that they were willing to come and just talk and bring words of comfort and hope. They were willing to do this for those who had been in prison for the sake of Jesus. And just understand that they were putting themselves in danger of being imprisoned by doing that. It's like if we had a, um, you know, some, some sort of rebellion in our, our country, and we were, we're part of this rebellion, and some of our friends were arrested and imprisoned. Well, if we go and visit them and help them out, we're going to be seen as likely rebels too. And so we're putting ourselves in danger of, of being arrested and thrown in prison as well. And some of them even had their property confiscated by the authorities. Things that they had worked hard for, things that they had, you know, scraped and saved and scrimped to, to gather and, and, and to hold on to. Some of these things were just stripped away from them by the authorities because they associated with those who had been arrested for the name of Jesus. They were so committed to Jesus and his people. And so <clears throat> this is the kind of work, this is the kind of service to the saints that back in chapter 6 he's talking about. And this kind of thing, sacrificial service to the saints, it's not the only evidence of authentic faith that we're given in Scripture, but it might be the evidence of genuine faith that is most often emphasized in the New Testament. Uh, once you start seeing this, I think you start to see it all over uh, the New Testament. I'll give you a, a small sampling from a lot of, among a lot of passages. So Jesus, you probably know this passage, Jesus in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And notice in that passage that Jesus says we are to love one another just as he has loved us. And when he says this, it's right after Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It's right before he's going to go to the cross. And so Jesus isn't talking about a feeling of love here. He's talking about love that is demonstrated through sacrificial service. <clears throat> Another well-known passage, this one from James chapter 2. 
James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, faith, I think, save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to you, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying that if you claim to have faith in Jesus, but don't help a brother or sister in need, then your faith is not authentic. It's fake. He calls it dead. And from this, I think we can deduce that the converse is true also, that our joyful willingness to help brothers and sisters in need is evidence that our faith is not dead, that it's alive. And then we see the same teaching in uh, all the one another's of the Apostle Paul's writings. It's repeated numerous times by the Apostle John in his writings, especially in 1 John, over and over and over again. He comes back to this idea that our um, evidence of genuine faith is going to be seen in acts of service, uh, love to the brothers and sisters. Um, I think, I didn't go through every book of the New Testament to look for this, but it's safe to say that nearly all of the books of the New Testament, nearly all the New Testament writers um, have this idea somewhere in their writings. And the, without going into all of those, I think we can see that this, this isn't some obscure teaching kind of tucked away in Hebrews chapter 6. Sacrificial service to the saints is one of, and maybe the primary evidence of genuine faith that we are given by God through Holy Scripture. Sacrificial service to the saints is one of, and maybe the primary evidence of genuine faith that we are given by God through Holy Scripture. And since it's such a significant theme in Scripture, I want to stop for a few minutes and apply that test to our lives. Is this evidence of authentic faith seen in, in our lives? Is it seen in my life? Is it seen in your life? Um, when we look at the way that the original readers were demonstrating their faith, our, obviously our current cultural, political, social context is different. Um, it's not as intense, even though there are some levels at which persecution is happening and growing, um, even in the United States. But it's definitely not as intense as what they were facing back in the first century. So it can be easy to, to look at that and what the believers did then and say, I would totally do that. If someone in our church was thrown into prison for their faith, I would definitely visit them. I would bring them whatever they need. I would help cover their legal costs, whatever it took. I would definitely do that. And maybe that's true that we would do that, but since we're not faced with that right now, I think just to say that can kind of be like a husband saying, I love my wife as Christ loves the church because I would take a bullet for her. I mean, if somebody broke into our house, I would be after that guy. I mean, I would, I would die for my wife. Now, a guy may say that, but at the same time, he might not be willing to get up off the couch and change a diaper while he's watching a ball game. So his claim that he would lay down his life for his wife is a little suspect. And I think that For us to say we would do the extreme thing 
comes into question, because how can we be confident that we would do the harder thing when the going really gets tough if we're not willing to do the things that are comparatively easy right now? And so that, I think, is what we really need to evaluate, not some hypothetical, would I visit a believer in prison if it came down to that? But here's what I mean. Can we really be confident that we would sacrifice our property for the sake of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted if we aren't even willing to sacrifice our time for our brothers and sisters now? If we aren't willing to make time to really, really deeply engage in tiny families or discipleship groups or, or other discipling relationships, if we aren't willing to invite certain families over because of the risk of their kids plundering our possessions and perhaps ruining our immaculately clean houses. Bodie Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. So I don't know how that one hits you, but what if we're not willing to take time to listen to the brother or sister who always requires an hour-long conversation? What if we're not willing to approach the brother who has a, an abrasive personality or for a woman to invite a lady that is maybe socially awkward or maybe just don't have a lot in common with to actually invite her out to coffee, get to know her? Are you willing to overlook perceived insults or slights against you? Are you willing to forgive when you've been wronged and pursue reconciliation? And I want to I press this a little bit more because it's important that we don't fool ourselves about this. The evidence of authentic faith that the New Testament talks about, it's costly. It's the kind of love for one another that only makes sense through the lens of faith. It's not just hanging out with Christians that you like, people that you'd probably hang out with whether they were believers or not, whether you were a believer or not. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We don't have to find the people that we... Um, have the least in common with and and be friends with those people necessarily. It's just that when we only connect with the people that we have a lot in common with, it's not a trustworthy evidence of genuine faith. Jesus says something like this in Luke chapter 14. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So do we gladly serve those who can never repay us? Is your profession of faith authenticated by costly, persistent service to the people of God? And if you say, yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Then be encouraged. This is, this is actually intended to be an encouraging passage that you can be sure of better things for yourself. Things having to do with salvation. And It's between you and the Holy Spirit to evaluate your own heart and your own life. And as pastors, we can't say for each individual how this should apply to you. And the danger 
and, and even mentioning specific things like I did is that some of you will feel really burdened by it. Others will feel that you've been let off the hook by it. The idea is to give you a, a sampling so that then the Holy Spirit would hopefully help you to apply that to your life in the way that you need it. But I would just say in general that your pastors are encouraged by the way that we see this evidence of authentic faith in this body. We see life in this church. We see evidence of uh, things having to do with salvation in this body of believers. Sacrificial service to the saints. That is the main test of authentic faith that the writer to the Hebrews gives us in this passage. But there are actually two more things just in verse 10 that I want to notice briefly. First is that this kind of sacrificial love, it's not mere humanitarianism. Uh, just kind of founded in a general love for mankind. It's not even love for brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they are part of our spiritual family. Again, verse 10 says, God is not, not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Our service to the saints is evidence of authentic faith only when it comes as an overflow of our love for God's name, for God's fame, for God's kingdom. And this is why it actually is an evidence of authentic faith, because it's evidence of God's own work in our lives. It's evidence that he has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. That's Romans 5, 5. God has poured his love into our hearts. And it shows also that it's a work of God, and it shows that, that our motivation to sacrificially love and serve one another, one another, it's not because we are so lovable. It's not because we're just a bunch of lovable people, and so it's, we're going to love one another in that way. We're not always so lovable. We love one another because God has first loved us, and then that love that God has put within us it fills us up, it spills over and pours out in love to the unlovely people around us. And unlovely describes all of us at some point, right? Maybe at all points. We don't love because we're easy to love. We love because God has put his love into our hearts. And secondly, I want to notice that the writer's confidence that his readers are saved that their lives actually give evidence of things that belong to salvation. That confidence is not ultimately founded in their work. He, he talks about their work, but his confidence isn't ultimately founded in their work. Look at it again in verse 10. It's founded in the justice of God. He says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And we need to be careful on this point because... <clears throat> This isn't the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification partly by grace and partly by works. And the reason we need to be careful with this passage in particular is because that is, this is one of the passages that Roman Catholic theologians will go to to try to defend that idea that we are justified partly by grace and partly by works. <clears throat> but we believe that justification, that's God's declaration that you are righteous in his sight, that that comes only by trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. 
That is, imputed means it's credited to our account, and that only happens by faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. But our works of faith matter because they are necessary evidence for our faith. I believe that's what this passage is teaching. And I want to make it clear that this doesn't in any way oppose or contradict the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ's righteousness alone. And we know that it doesn't contradict because uh, the great defender of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the Apostle Paul, he can talk about both of these things in the same letter and not feel as though he's contradicting himself or have to explain a contradiction. So in Romans 3 through 5, if you know uh, the book of Romans, in Romans 3 through 5, Paul just gloriously heralds the good news that we are justified by faith alone. That's kind of summed up in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So that's Romans 3, and just before that, In Romans 2, Paul speaks of a judgment according to works. This is Romans 2, 6, and 7. He says, he will, he's speaking about God, he says, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So what Paul's saying here is that when God on judgment day hears your claim to the righteousness of Jesus, you will ask for evidence. And because, as we see here in Romans six, uh, Hebrews 6.10, that because God is a just judge, when your works of sacrificial love for the saints are brought before them, God in his justice will declare them to be what they are. He will say, these are spirit-wrought demonstrations of love for my name. And those kinds of works only appear in true saints, only in those who have true, authentic faith in Jesus. So yes, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that might sound strange to you, but this passage from Matthew 25 may be familiar to you. And it's the same idea. Jesus says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, before, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So in this we see that every authentic 
claim of faith in Jesus will be made evident by works, that evidence must be present on judgment day, which is sobering, but I think it's also really encouraging what Jesus says here that, and what the writer of Hebrews says, that God is a just judge. So he's not going to forget or, or cast aside as like inadmissible evidence even one of your sacrificial acts to his people, things that you have forgotten about, things that maybe didn't seem like a big deal at the time. I mean, what, what Jesus says to these people, they're going, when do, when do we do that? How? What? God knows. God remembers. God, God holds on to things that we can't because our minds are too small. He knows every act of sacrificial service to his people done out of love for him. Not even something so small as giving a brother or sister a drink is going to be forgotten by God. And so your confidence that your faith will result in full and final salvation, it's not ultimately founded on your work. It's founded on the justice of God. So if you per persevere in costly this persistent, this practical service to the people of God because of your love for God, then you can be absolutely certain based on the unchanging character of God that you are blessed by your Father and that you will one day inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And the writer to the Hebrews gives a closing encouragement, an exhortation to press on. And that also is, I believe, founded upon the justice of God. Saying that if in his justice God's not going to forget your past and present works for the sake of his name, God doesn't change. God will continue to be just, and he's also going to righteously remember all of your sacrificial work that expresses love for him in the future, all the way to the end of your life. And so with that in mind, let's look at those verses. Verse 11 says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire each one of you to show the same earnest, earnestness to have the full assurance of hope and, until the end. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think the ESV is the most clear translation of this verse. When it says that we should be earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the end, it makes it sound like the, the focus is on our subjective feeling of hopefulness. To have hope, that, that makes me think what it's talking about me feeling hopeful. In this passage, the focus of hope is actually on our objective hope meaning the thing that we hope for. It's not on how we feel about that, our confidence that, that we have internally, but it's actually the, the thing that we hope for. And in this passage, the thing that we hope for is at the end of verse 12, that we would inherit God's promises, that we will be declared righteous on judgment day because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that we will be welcomed into the eternal rest of our Father. This is what we hope for, that we will enjoy the all-satisfying presence of our Savior in a renewed creation forever. This, these are the things that God promises. This is the object of our hope. And so I, I think that that's 
where our focus should be, not on our own subjective feeling of hopefulness. So I actually, I like the Holman Christian Standard Bible's translation of this verse because I, I think it helps to put our focus there, not on our fluctuating feelings of hopefulness, but actually on what God will certainly bring to pass. So in that translation, verse 11 reads in part, Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. Like, it's, it's going to happen. So focus there, not on how you feel about it, but focus on the day when God's promises will be all fulfilled. What does he mean by the, the same earnestness, or as the uh, HCSB renders it, the same diligence? What do you mean by same? Well, he means the same kind of earnestness or diligence that these believers had shown in the past when they gladly suffered for the sake of Jesus, when they diligently showed their love for God by their sacrificial service to the saints. If you remember, uh, or we're here back when Jason preached through um, the end of chapter 5, in verse 11, this church that was uh, being written to, it, it was becoming dull of hearing. The, their spiritual senses were dulled. And that word that's translated dull in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, is the same word that's translated as sluggish in this chapter in verse 12. So he's, he's kind of bookending this, this uh, warning, this rebuke, this exhortation by saying, hey, you've become sluggish. Your spiritual senses are dull. And I, I've given you all of this, this rebuke. I've given you this warning. And I'm giving you this word of exhortation to press on so that you won't be sluggish. He's exhorting them to return to their first love, to diligently be growing in their love for God so that that love then overflows in acts of love towards their brothers and sisters. Again, because of, here's his aim, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And so I want to close with just saying that, again, brothers and sisters, your pastor's we love you. And this desire that he expresses, this is our desire for you. We don't desire for you to be continually questioning the authenticity of your faith. Our earnest desire for you is that with certainty that your faith is genuine, that, you're, that you will press on with renewed vigor towards the prize, toward the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, so that one day you can say with the Apostle Paul, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is our hope. This is our longing for you. This is why we preach all of Scripture. We preach both the warnings and the encouragements, the exhortations, so that we can stand before the Lord with joy and that we can press on with hope, with confidence. But what if, as we went through this test of faith today, what if you found that your life your faith is lacking this kind of evidence? Or what if 
if you're honest, you look at your life presently and don't see it, but you can look back on previous times in your life when there was a willingness and you took opportunities to sacrificially love brothers and sisters. What do you do if, if you don't see that kind of evidence in your life right now? Confess your sins. Trust in Jesus for full forgiveness and begin to walk in repentance. This is one of the reasons why we love taking communion every week, because every week communion is an opportunity in this race that we're running, this, this race of faith to stop, evaluate where we're at, to gather our breath, and to run on again with renewed vigor, renewed strength, laying down our burdens, laying down our doubts, setting our hope more firmly on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so for those of you who are believers, who are trusting that you are justified by the grace of God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you by faith alone, then in just a minute I'm going to invite you to come and to come to the communion tables, we'll come up to the front by exiting to your left. Just come around to one of these tables, take the communion elements, and head back to your seat uh, from the right. And as you do that, remember that these communion elements, this, this bread and this juice, they represent the body of Christ that was hung on a cross, the blood of Christ that was poured out to make atonement for sins. If you're trusting in him, it's for your sins. And in doing so, he, he not only paid the penalty for your sins, but he actually purchased the power for you to live in faithfulness. He purchased for you the gift of the Holy Spirit that would pour the love of God into your heart. Jesus purchased the power that will enable you to walk with evidence of genuine faith in your life. So trust in him again today. Find hope in his work again today. If you're not trusting in him, please don't come and take communion. I'll be down front if you'd like to talk with me. Um, Pastor Steve is not feeling well, so maybe you shouldn't um, pray with him. But um, Jason's here this morning, and uh, he would love to pray with you as well, or any other believer. If you'd like to pray or talk with us, we'll be available. If you're not comfortable doing that this morning, we would love still... For, um, for the opportunity to talk with you, and you can fill out one of the connection cards and drop it off in one of the boxes or, or just hand it to us this morning, and we'll connect with you this week. But after I pray for those who should, come and receive the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for being the pioneer of our faith, for walking this journey ahead of us for demonstrating love to the full for us though we are absolutely undeserving of it and I pray that you will fill us up with a reassurance of a confidence in your love that would enable us to display that kind of love to the world, to one another, 
Enable us, even through this time, even through communion, enable us, strengthen us to press on to the end of our days with faith and with hope that you are a promise-keeping Savior. We love you and we pray in your great name. Amen. May stand and come when you're ready.